Hello and welcome to the Being Well podcast. I'm Forrest Hansen. A few weeks ago, we began our conversation on loneliness with an episode dedicated to defining loneliness and exploring how we can both be surrounded by other people and still feel lonely. We looked at some of the heritable and non-heritable roots of loneliness, and I shared a personal story that I actually spun off into a separate episode related to how we can still experience plenty of loneliness, even if we're not genetically predisposed to it. That episode closed with a conversation on how loneliness can creep into even our most connective, important relationships. Today, we're going to be focusing on what we can do, practically speaking, about all of that. And to help us do that, I'm joined by Dr. Rick Hansen. So dad, how are you doing? I'm good. I'm looking forward to this topic. Last we spoke about this topic, you mentioned having a, and I quote, three-point plan for ending loneliness. So that's a, uh, a, a worthy <laughs> challenge, a high bar to clear. And I'm looking forward to hearing how you're going to pull this one off. Thanks. <laughs> well, first, I want to liken loneliness to depressed mood in mm-hmm. some ways, in that when we're depressed, being depressed gets in the way of doing anything about being depressed because we're depressed. We lack energy. It's hard to concentrate. It all seems kind of pointless and hopeless. Why bother? So it's particularly hard to deal with it. Being depressed undermines getting out of depression. All right, loneliness. I think there's a similarity here. In other words, when people are are feeling lonely, first point, there often are other related things going on, such as depressed mood that sap energy. And when you feel lonely, often what happens over time is a sense of defeat. You try things, last session, podcast, we talked about making bids for contact that have been disappointed again and again and again, at least in your own experience, leading to a lot of loneliness. So there's an internalized sense of what Martin Seligman talked about as learned helplessness in this area, a sense of futility and defeat. So all these things can undermine people making efforts to become less lonely over time. And I just want to acknowledge that up front and to acknowledge how hard it can actually be. Another aspect of how hard it can actually be is people acquire a sensitivity to being disappointed again, or you reach out to a friend and they don't want to have lunch with you a second time. And uh, it just seems like so much effort. A lot simpler to just go home, hang out with your cat, watch TV by yourself and get through your day. And I don't mean that sarcastically. It really is easier to do that. Yeah, I think that's a really good underlying framework for everything. And also just acknowledging the challenges that some of these things can present to action in yeah. our lives. Yeah. How it's very easy externally often for us to see that when somebody else is experiencing a problem, all the things that they should do to change it. Yeah. But when we're living it ourselves, often it can just be a little bit too close to home. And even simple actions, like you described in the previous part, little bits for contact, little moments of re-engaging your significant other or spouse, little moments of trying to be more sociable in a variety of different ways can actually represent a pretty high bar of action for a person to clear. Mm-hmm, exactly. So in no particular order, point one, two, three, the first one I'll name is take action. I've known a number of people who were this is a key point, actually, who did not feel lonely in terms of work colleagues, friendly acquaintances. They didn't feel lonely even in the friend department, but there was an ache in their heart for a soulmate. They felt lonely in that way. Or even 
while being, let's say, married to someone for a couple of decades, they deep down came to feel lonely inside that relationship and lonely lying next to the person that they'd been sleeping next to for 10, 20 or more years. So loneliness can be particular to certain settings and certain kinds of relationships, just kind of calling that out. So what to do about it? The, the first suggestion I have is about taking action because that's really important, right? I've known people who said, wow, I just feel lonely. I'm unfulfilled. I don't have a partner, but they're doing nothing to get a partner. Or people who say, oh, I just feel so distant from the people at my work and they seem to be friendly with each other and I just feel outside the loop. Well, okay. Is there any action you could take? Not blaming the so-called victim, not blaming yourself, but just being pragmatic in a really simple way. Is there something I could do in where I put my gaze in terms of eye contact, in what I say, in the tone in which I say it, the things I join, the efforts I make to be with other people and be open-minded with other people? Is there anything I could do, even for a minute, or five minutes today, that would be different from what I've done in the past and would create, in effect, new kinds of factors in my life that might make a difference for me. I don't think there's any particular silver bullet or magic you know, action that a person can take. Lots of little things usually have led to a person feeling lonely. It's going to be lots of little things usually that help a person feel substantially less lonely in a year, let's say, than how they feel today. But take action. Think about your particular situation. Is there anything you could do? Uh, one little detail, I, I did this meditation teacher training about 15 years ago, and I walked into a group, I think it was about 15 years. Anyway, there were 90 people, and they all seemed like they belonged there, and I wasn't so sure I belonged there. And some of them were kind of scary or different or very accomplished or just not like me. And I have a whole history, as you know, Forrest, of feeling shy and left out in groups. One-on-one, -on -one, I'm really easy with, but groups can stir up that old stuff. So my strategy was, and in this program, we did five retreats a year. They were each about a week long. So we were together five times over a two and a half year period. So five retreats over a two and a half year period. I just started focusing on connecting with one person at a time. So in the morning, maybe I'm sitting next to someone. I would ask them about themselves. And by lunchtime, I would start to feel kind of comfortable with that person. Like I had an ally there. They knew me. I knew them. All right. And then lunch or after lunch, maybe I'd pick a different person. And that person, I would just kind of, by happenstance, find ways to connect. And then day after day after day, at the end of, let's say, seven days, I'd look around this circle of 90, and there were five or six people that felt like a kind of refuge, that when I rested my eyes on them, or if I didn't know who else to talk with, I would sort of drift their way, I felt better and better. And I literally just kind of systematically <laughs> went through the 90. And I, it, a lot of it was just kind of random, who was sitting next to me or who I was standing in the elevator with or something like that. Some people uh, seemed more approachable at first, so I would kind of start with them, pick the low-hanging fruit. But I worked my way up to the people who seemed most sort of prickly or different or just spooky for me maybe to talk with. I felt less than them in some way. And that's an example of the kind of actions we can take. Just simple things, break it down, make connections, build from there. So that's my first element of the three-point plan. 
take action. <laughs> well, great. Well, it seems like a really good place to start. And particularly with the recommendation you gave about finding low-hanging fruit in your yeah. life, easy ways to drop into more social interaction with people. So, okay, what's your second piece of advice? Second is be caring yourself. Hmm. It's a little counterintuitive because by definition, to repeat the metaphor that I used the first time we talked about loneliness, it's a kind of social famine. It's like a social starvation. That's a better word, starvation, where you're just not getting the interpersonal nutrients you need experientially. Now, it's possible, actually, that you're with people who are reasonably friendly and emotionally available to you and they have goodwill toward you in a genuine way, but you don't feel it because feeling it is the essence of the matter. That's what I really mean by social hunger, social starvation. And so in that framing, you want to receive, right? I'm lonely because no one cares about me. I'm lonely because I don't feel like I matter to anyone, all right? That's about receiving. On the other hand, it's hard to make others be certain ways. And often there are longstanding issues about experiencing the caring, the inclusion that's actually already there. So my second suggestion in my three-point plan is to look for ways to be warm, friendly, compassionate, encouraging, appreciative, supportive, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, with other people. Because remarkably, love is love whether it's flowing out or flowing in. And in an amazing way, even when we, when we feel, often because it's true, that we're not receiving enough caring from others, that deficit can be healed to a real extent, not entirely, but to a large extent by being more caring ourselves. It's sort of like if love is like a current flowing in and flowing out, it, it heals the ground it moves over, whether it's flowing in or flowing out, the, the ground of the heart. So look for ways in, to be a little supportive, a little friendly, smile at people, do it within the range of what's authentic. I think much of the time when we're with others, there's a kind of range, if you imagine, I'm holding my hands about six inches apart. And uh, if you're with you know, Mr. Grumpy, the taxi driver, you know, that range is kind of low. If you're with Mr. Friendly, the uh, person making your latte, then the range is higher up. So you have a range, all right. And then the question is, what are you doing in terms of that range? Are you at the low end of the range or at the high end of the range? It's like the range moves, right? But within the range, wherever it is, are you going for what is the maximum that you could do authentically inside that range. And so that's what I'm talking about when I talk about being caring and friendly toward others and this general idea of the moving range and then hitting the high end of the range rather than the low end of the range in your dealings with other people is a really, I think, useful idea. That's great. Yeah. Two key points here. First point, we just cannot control what other people do. We can control ourselves though, generally, particularly over longer periods of time. Maybe in the moment, we're going to react in some way. But over longer periods, if, for example, a lonely person said, you know, I'm going to help one person today feel a little better. I'm going to maybe thank them for something. I might express genuine gratitude to them for what they said in a meeting or how they helped me or what I learned listening to them. Or maybe I'm going to be sympathetic, even non-verbally, just present, 
sympathetic when they're talking about something that's really bothering them. Maybe, maybe I'm going to just take some breaths and sort of tune in to the person, the being behind the eyes and the other person. And I'm just going to be in touch with my respect for that. And intuitively, the other person is probably going to feel that in some way. Mm, No guarantee, mm -hmm. but something. I'm going to be that way. And that's an initiative we each can take. And it's remarkable when we are kind and loving and compassionate and in reasonable ways, operating with goodwill. I had a teacher who talked about a blessing disposition. If we have the disposition of blessing in the sense of recognizing what's good over there and having a kind of benediction for the other, a kind of well-wishing, that's what benediction means in a nutshell. We wish them well in a funny kind of way. That is so healing to a lonely heart. Part of what you're highlighting here is the importance just of compassion, of self-compassion and then compassion for other, and the relationship that these two things can have with each other, which I think is really interesting, where it's sort of funny in a way to describe an antidote to loneliness as just kind of being extroverted or being supportive of other people or pushing out the social supplies to others that you are hoping to receive from them. You know, that feels maybe on some level, level contradictory. Yeah. Or like, how can I give that out when I am getting none of that myself? Yeah, exactly. I'm running on empty. What? You expect me to give more? Absolutely. Oh, yeah. That feels like, whoa. (laughs) Really understandable. Yeah, which which makes total sense to, to clarify here. But it is funny how so much of it is about when we when we put those things out into out into the world, they often do come back to us in ways small and large. Often when we're compassionate toward others, they open up the space to be more compassionate to us. Of course, this rests in all of the advice that we've given on previous episodes about not being taken advantage of and understand the people who are going to give you the supplies that you need in life and those who, you know, it's kind of like trying to squeeze blood out of a stone. But fundamentally, the more that we can be rested in a place of compassion for other and compassion for self, and through our actions represent that out in the world, the more likely we are to receive those positive inputs from out in the world, which I think is just a really nice reflection. Yeah, you know, Forrest, it really reminds me of how simple it is actually to tap into these deep, profound refuges. Mm-hmm. For example, I'm thinking of certain people who I think factually have clearly wronged me. And I know for myself that one of the great healings and protections is to rest in a feeling, a simple feeling of recognizing the good in them. Alongside that recognition could well be judgment about how they were disappointing or they broke an agreement or they acted in a crummy kind of way. But I'm not attending to that. It's just not relevant. I'm for my own sake. I'm just kind of bobbing up and down in a warm tropical sea (laughs) of just seeing what's genuinely good about them and not contending with anything. I'm not resisting anything about them. I'm not trying to make them more like that. I'm just kind of in touch with what's kind of cool about you. Even if around that, I'm mad at you or I feel you really blew it there, whatever. I'm just not 
invested in it. And when we do that, and I say we, because it's not my invention, it's really natural for us to do that. It's remarkably protective of ourselves, right? It sort of wraps us in this cloak, almost her bubble of positive energy. That's really good. And I do also have a feeling that when a person is genuinely bobbing up and down in that feeling, other people get it. They register it. Initially, maybe they can't kind of believe it, especially if they've been adversaries with you, let's say. But after a while, it kind of sinks in. And so for the quote unquote lonely person, to just be bobbing up and down in an open-hearted, warm-hearted feeling of the good and the being of the other, deep down inside maybe, way deep down inside in some cases, it just is so nurturing. Mm. And it's easy to do. Yeah, I think that's a great summary of a lot of material and a good piece of advice. So those are our first two, taking action. Yep. Then secondarily, all of the notes that we just gave around compassion, around centering yourself and that warm heartedness, around reaching out towards others in the fashions that you hope yeah. to be reached out to yourself. Yeah. So what's your third, third part, final great. piece of advice? So the ways, uh, the first two give you the best odds of the third element in my three-point plan to be working. Mm, mm-hmm. And also they feel good along the way. First, to know that you're taking the action that you can and you can be proud of yourself about that and you can have a sense of hope. Okay, I've got some progress. I've, I've got some, some action going on here. I've got some deal flow, maybe, you know, business kind of term. Something's going on here. That makes you feel better. And also when you rest and you're, you're caring, your goodwill for others, that, that is intrinsically rewarding as well. All right, part three. Since you are socially hungry, let's say, socially starving, any opportunity you have to feel and then internalize experiences of being seen or cared about are like, that's your vitamin C when you're dying of scurvy. It's critically important. So it means, and we've talked about this at other times as well, as you go through your day, it's remarkable that Unless a person is hiding in a cave with a bag over their head or walking down a street with a bag over their head, let's say, there are always, at least under normal circumstances, let's say, there are always numerous, a dozen, two dozen, 10 dozen times a day when another person factually is being more than neutral toward you, Mm -hmm. more than neutral. They're not just passing by you on a street. They're glancing at you with, let's say, a genuine smile. Not that fake smile that the mouth moves, but the eyes don't, but a genuine smile. Or maybe they held a door open for you, or they let you go first. Or in a work environment, they included you, they reached out to you. Maybe they even complimented you. On and on and on and on and on. There are many, many times a day where that's the fact. There is caring in one form or another toward you. And you and I have talked for us about a kind of simple way I have of identifying five kinds of caring that sort of move up the ladder as a were of intensity, just so you become more aware of what's out there. One, inclusion. You're included. Two, you're seen. They're listening. They're paying attention. Maybe even they're being empathic. Three, you're appreciated. They valued you. They, they thought that was good. They're grateful to you. There's a compliment coming your way. You are chosen. You are selected. Fourth, liking. 
friendliness, fondness, healthy physical affection, kind of a, yo, we're, we're together in on this, you know, with a friendly, warm warmth coming towards you. And then last, love, being loved. Those are five opportunities or kinds of opportunities during the day to feel really cared about by another person. Second, when you are cared about, let yourself feel it. The fact is they're caring, it's appropriate to feel cared about. And when you do feel cared about, and it's not more than what it is, but it doesn't need to be less than what it is, slow down to taking that good. Stay with the experience for a breath or two, feel it in your body, focus on what feels good about it, help it hardwire itself into your own nervous system. That's a key summary. And I think that it's really helpful to be motivated in this way. If you were in the desert and you knew that you could not take anything that was moist with you, any source of moisture, you could not take it with you. Every single time you came upon something, maybe a little bit of dew, had gathered in a crevice in the rock in the, in the early morning, or maybe there was a, a bush that you could chew and it was juicy and full of water inside, or maybe you came to a little tiny spring and you had a chance to drink, you would value every single opportunity to get what your innermost being desperately needed. And I think bringing that kind of motivation to bear is really useful. What's nice about the approach I'm describing is that it's all about what's factually true. There's no fake it till you make it. It's not about imagining anything. Second, it's almost entirely internal. In other words, a lonely person often feels that there are risks in being overtly social or making overt bids for contact. But what I'm describing is entirely internal, where you're not doing any kind of behavior that's a bid for contact. You're just feeling, you're letting yourself feel what's already there. On the outside, you could look all cool and yo, I got it together, da, 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 da. But on the inside, you're really taking in the good. I think the last thing I would just say about this as well is that in ways that we've talked about with so-called linking, uh, the bringing together positive and negative in our experience, one thing you can help yourself do is when you do have these feelings of connection with other people, be aware off to the side of awareness of that giant hole in your heart or be aware off to the side of your awareness of angry or hurt or wounded feelings of various kinds. So then if you keep the current experience of being cared about in various ways big and you have that old stuff or even current negative material off to the side, they gradually connect with each other. And over time, the positive will ease and heal the negative. The metaphor you gave there about hunting for water in the desert, I think is a really accurate way to describe a lot of people's experience. And when you're in the desert, it's very easy to stretch this metaphor to the breaking point to look around and see just no water anywhere. Yeah. But if you really look for it, you often can find it exactly. somewhere, even if yeah. it's just inside of those plants that you were describing. So in our experience, we might have one where it just feels devoid of human contact or devoid of meaningful relationship or whatever it might be. But in little ways, we can often find it, whether it's, hey, if you're listening to this podcast, you're listening to two people talk. You know, you can mm. fill out our contact form. You can send somebody an email. There are various ways to touch others if you feel that that's really what you need right now. So I would absolutely support that as a piece of advice for people. 
To talk about this maybe a slightly different way, I think that it's helpful to explore what the roots of loneliness are and the answers to how do we address loneliness. Mm. And in kind of thinking about it, there are sort of three elements that tend to contribute to somebody feeling lonely. The first is that they don't feel that they have enough social relationships. Mm. This is actually kind of low impact based on the research, based on what people can see from their own experience. That idea of there could be a lot of people in the room and yet you still feel lonely. Yeah. The second is that people tend to perceive that the quality of those relationships is not very high. This is much higher impact. Mm, And what that points to is the importance of having one kind of lodestone relationship in your life, hopefully at least one, that you know that you can rely on and refer to. Yeah. Developing those relationships is a whole topic in and of itself, whether it's with a life partner, a child, a friend, a spouse, a teacher, a mentor, whatever it might be. But there's a lot of research that suggests that literally just one of those key relationships has a huge impact on the ability to weather through a lonely experience and on people's perception of themselves also as being a quote-unquote lonely person. Well, that's really deep for us. And I have a couple of comments on that. The first mm-hmm. is when I've worked with kids, including kids who are lonely or socially awkward, or they just are vulnerable. Maybe it's the new kid who's come to the school. What I would tell the parents and what I'd ask about is, does your child have one good friend? Mm-hmm. Because if you have just one friend in fourth grade in the playground, you've got your go-to person. You know who you can go over and talk with. The worst thing is you just feel like you're standing there twisting in the wind and everyone's kind of staring at you like, whoa, what a lame what a loser. No, it's so great. You just have your one person. And it's really important. Second, I believe it's true that when men, adult men in, let's say, America are surveyed and you ask them, How many good friends do you have? So there's a number, zero, one, two, three. They're only integers. You can't have half of friends, okay? And there's this term in statistics, you know it, the mode, median, and mean. The mode is the category that has the highest number of Mm -hmm. responses for it, all right? So what do you think the modal number of close friends is for adult American men, even when they're allowed to count their spouse as one of those close friends. The modal number, wait for it, is one. That's the most commonly endorsed number. One. And it seems bizarre. But actually, when I think about my dad, your grandfather, very social, extroverted, rancher's son, Perfectly capable of being alone, thinking about stuff, his research, whatnot. Very friendly guy. Amiable, for sure. How many close friends did he have? I Mm. think he had probably one. Maybe he had two, other than his wife, my mom. And it's pretty normative. So it's really interesting to appreciate that, first, that so many people don't even have one. Because they're endorsing zero. They don't even have a single close friend, a single good friend. And... Get one, at least one. Hmm. So I'd like to add two points that relate to my encouragement to take action, be caring yourself, and internalize social supplies when they're there. It's this, very understandably, a lonely person has been disappointed in the heart 
many, 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 many times. And also probably has anticipated disappointment many, 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 many times just in their own imagination before venturing out into the world. So it can be understandably really scary to take any of the steps that I'm suggesting here, especially the first and the third of these. It's relatively safe to be caring yourself because you can't be disappointed because you are actually being caring, right? No one can stop you from being caring. So with regard to the, the disappointment fear that is very, very understandable, what's helpful is to appreciate that in the third suggestion I have about internalizing the social supplies that are actually available for you to have, they're real, is to realize that you can't be disappointed because they're real in the moment and the longings that they could understandably stir up, which then you fear will be disappointed. Those longings are distinct from, keep them separate from locking on to the the target, (laughs) locking on to that little bit of water in the crack that's important for you to internalize to yourself and recognize that everything else around it is separate from tasting and swallowing that social supply, that water in the crack. Second point, related to some of the research I think you've been talking about for us, people you've let me know who are lonely often begin as children to have a pessimistic view of themselves mm-hmm. and to some extent the world, like, yeah, I'm no good. Meh. And one suggestion I have for someone who's actually going to try to do what we're suggesting here is set your self-concept to the side. Mm-hmm. Whatever that voice in the back of the head is rattling on about, Just say, you know, you might be right, you might be wrong. I don't know. I'm just not going to take that into account. And what I'm going to do is I'm just going to take action, including the action of slowing down to feel something when the hot dog vendor is smiling at me, to use a corny example I rely on a lot. All that chatter in your mind about how you can't count on other people or they'll lead you on or you'll make a mistake and then you'll feel so horrible or nobody ever liked you anyway. All of that stuff... Don't argue with it. Say to it, essentially, you might be right. You might be wrong. I don't know. And I'm just going to kind of ignore it and just take action. I'm going to slow down to experience that this person in my apartment building actually is friendly with me and seems genuinely to like me in a perfectly okay way. I'm just going to zero in on that and disengage from all the yakety-yak, ideology, beliefs, expectations, meaning, philosophy, blah, blah, blah. I'm just going to step out of that. I'm going to step out of it. It is whatever it is, and I'm stepped out of it. That, to me, is a really, really useful thing. I think that that's a good place to bring today's episode to a close. So today we had the second part of our conversation on loneliness. In it, Rick shared his three-point plan for ending loneliness. Those three points could be summarized as taking action, being caring of yourself, and cultivating the things inside yourself that you'd like to see more of in other people, and internalizing social supplies. To use the metaphor that we used inside of the episode, if you're dying of thirst, you're really going to go out of your way to absorb every drop of water. So if you're starved of social supplies, it makes sense to both really seek them out and really maximize the benefit you get from any of the small instances of social interaction that you may have. 
We also emphasized compassion, the value of lodestone relationships. And finally, Rick closed with a really wonderful reflection on the power of stepping out of our self-concept, because that self-concept can be holding us back from connecting with the people we truly want to connect with. If you've been enjoying the podcast, I'd really appreciate it if you would take a moment to subscribe to it through the platform of your choice and maybe even leave a rating and a positive review. It really does help us out. And finally, I'd like to remind you about Dr. Hansen's online program, Just One Minute. If you're interested in learning more about Just One Minute, I'll include a link to it in the description of today's podcast. So until next time, thanks for listening.